This week, as I was thinking through the message, I was typed into the Google search. Those that left at the height of their career, whether it be sports or whether it be a job, whether it be whatever it might be, that they were at the height and they chose to go on to something else. And one of the names that came up, and you will know the name if you know anything about football, was a man by the name of Pat Tillman. Remember the story of Pat Tillman? Some of you may be a little bit too young, but Pat Tillman was born on November 6, 1976, and had an incredible talent for football. He was recognized very early as someone who would accomplish great things in football. He led his high school football team to a state championship. He was then drafted by, or not drafted, but he was um, enrolled in Arizona State University, where he became, in 1998, drafted by the Arizona Cardinals to play professional football. Soon he would become an outstanding player on the Arizona team. And in one particular year, in I think it was 2000, he had the record for tackles for his team. When a contract came along from the St. Louis Rams, he turned it down, even though it was several million dollars more than the contract he had with Arizona. And because of his commitment to Arizona, decided to stay in Arizona. A man that was known for both his intellect and his sports ability and a man who was known to be committed to the things that were important. Something happened then. In 2001, you will remember, the World Trade Centers were attacked and collapsed. That had a profound impact on Pat Tillman and on his brother. In fact, he wrote a little bit after that, Sports embodied many of the qualities I deem meaningful. However, these last few years, and especially after recent events, I have come to appreciate just how shallow and insignificant my role is. It is no longer important. That's an incredible statement. For he had spent years pursuing his career in football, to become one of the best. And when he saw what was happening around him, he said, you know, there is a greater purpose in life than playing a game for money. Again, if you know the story of Pat Tillman, then you will know that after that season, finishing the 2001 season, he and his brother chose to enlist in the army and became eventually an army ranger and to put aside his football career. He gave away a $3.6 million contract to pursue something that he considered greater. He and his brother did enlist. He married his high school sweetheart just before he entered into military service. 
and then on April 22nd, 2004, at the age of 28, Pat, Kilman, Pat Tillman was killed. When the world looks at that, they say, that's stupid. A world that is so narcissistic and so self-centered that believes that I am the center of the universe and therefore my life is to be lived based on what it always benefits me. Now there's controversy over Pat Tillman's death and eventually it came out that it was friendly fire and um, there was some real discouraging things that happened as a result of the way that his death was handled. But none of that takes away from Pat Tillman's understanding that there are things that are greater than me for which I can dedicate and commit my life. That theme, that idea, that there is something greater, that to lose everything for is worth it, is the foundation of the passage that we look at this morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 3, and we will begin in verse 7 there. But the whole idea that you read through this passage is that in Paul's life, there was something much more important than his own standing, than his own acknowledgement, his own acclaim, whatever it might be. Whatever that was, Paul says, I consider that to be insignificant compared to something that is infinitely greater. Now, I believe what Pat Tillman did was something to be honored. But also, I believe that there's something even greater than we can commit our lives to than the freedom and patriotism of our nation. That may last a few centuries, however long God allows our nation to exist. But what Paul says is there is something even greater, something that is even more significant, something that is guaranteed to last into eternity, for which we can dedicate our lives. As Paul comes to this passage, he has a central theme. It's this, that the primary aim of the life of the believer is to know Christ. And most of us are going to go, yeah, we know that. But I'm afraid we've lost sight of that. You see, Paul starts this whole section there in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7 by giving a summary statement of what he has said and what he's going to say when in verse 7 he says this, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Summary. And that statement is then expanded in incredible ways to remind us that the primary purpose of our lives as believers is that we might know Christ. Paul has been developing his 
theme through the book of Philippians. He began with his personal testimony about his ministry. And then in chapter 1, verse 27, he began to talk about that which is the purpose and focus of our lives. And he begins to deal through there what we are to be like. And he says that we are to have this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used only for his own purposes. And that passage is the theological high point of the entire book of Philippians. But it's not the emotional high point. The emotional high point, the place filled with the greatest sense of passion, is when Paul comes to this section and begins to proclaim the importance, the centrality, of his relationship with Christ and the call to know Christ. When he comes here and he's talked about the joy that he calls forth in the Philippian church and he, and he warns them against those that would steal their joy, those who base their relationship with God on that which they do rather than their faith in Christ Jesus and what he accomplished, Paul says that will steal your joy, that will steal your life, that will steal the primary purpose that our lives are to be lived for. And now he comes and he says, this is it. This is our life. This is the gospel. This is the expanse of the message of Paul when he comes and he says, this is what my life is about. And when I get to the end, I want on my tombstone. I look for one of those, you know, remember those tombstone commercials? What do you want on your tombstone? You know, pepperoni and sausage. The quality was just lousy on them. But anyway, what Paul wants on his tombstone is that he knew Christ more and more and more until now he knows him fully. That was it. That was the total extent of the primary focus of Paul's life is to know Christ. Beloved, we know that here but I'm not sure we live it out. We can say it, but I'm not sure we live it. Part of it is living in the world and all the things that surround us and distract us. Part of it is our own hearts that have a bent towards self-centeredness and selfishness. And part of it, I'm afraid, is a complacency a familiarity of just being around it all the time and forgetting its significance, its importance, its centrality. Now, before we go on, we need to come to understand something. We need to answer this question. What does it mean to know Christ? What is he talking about? What is Paul Speaking of when he says that knowing Christ is all that his life is about. That Christ is about the focus, that his his life is about knowing Jesus. 
Well, first of all, let's understand this. It is not an intellectual knowledge. It is not that I happen to know more in my thinking about who Jesus is, that I have the theological correctness, that I can speak about the hypostatic union and know what that means, that I can speak about the incarnation and know as much of the details as we can know from Scripture. Are those things important? Yes! I love theology. But that's not the focus. And the sad part is, I know many people who know an awful lot about theology and know very little about Christ, as Paul means it here. Now, just in a historical context, it's not the Gnostic sense of knowledge, which meant there was this sort of secret, hidden uh, understanding that if you had that understanding, then you were closer to God and you had the key to things. That's where, you know, remember um, Dan Brown's, I um, can't think of the name of the book. Um, someone saying? Da Vinci Code. You know, the, the Gnostics had that idea of, of this secret knowledge. Oh, that came in the third century and all that bunk in Dan Brown's book is ridiculous. I'm not talking about that. Here's what he's talking about. The word is used in an Old Testament sense. It's knowledge in the way that the Hebrews understood it as they were rewriting the Old Testament. And basically, knowledge in the Old Testament involves connectedness and relationship. And when speaking of God, it's with God. One of the commentaries that I used this week to find it this way. In the Old Testament, knowledge signifies living in a close relationship with something or somebody. Creating what may be called communion, connectedness, interrelationship, uh, intimacy. When used of God, to know God was regarded as of paramount importance. And meant to be close, meant to be in a close personal relationship with him. We say it all the time that Christianity is not about a religion, it's about a relationship. And what that means is the primary focus of our lives is to know Christ, to get to know him, to get to enjoy him, to get to be closer with him, to get to be more intimate with him, to get to be more open with him, to get to be more vulnerable with him. And our relationship is ever deepening in coming to know who Christ is and what that relationship is like in our lives. Do you want to know the most amazing passage that speaks about that? It's found in the book of Hosea. Remember Hosea? He was told to go marry Gomer, who, by the way, was a prostitute. Not the good foundation of a marriage. And the inevitable happens. She goes off and is involved in prostitution and is unfaithful to Hosea. But Hosea still loves the woman. And when she is at the lowest, about to be sold as a slave on the slave market, Hosea goes and buys her back and knows her again, establishes a relationship. The word know in the Old Testament is used of the intimacy between a married couple. 
It can define knowledge in that depth, that level of intimacy. And in Hosea chapter 2, God is saying Israel is just like Gomer, going out and playing the prostitute with all of these false gods, with all of these nations that cannot save her, and that she is constantly doing this in our relationship. God says, yet I love her. He says, I will make of them, meaning Israel, a covenant on that day, a new covenant. What Paul is talking about here. Paul says, I no longer live according to the old covenant. I live according to the new covenant. And the new covenant is all about knowing Christ. Not obeying the law, not keeping the commandments, but deepening my relationship with Jesus. So God says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will be your lover again. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And now this is how he describes that relationship of a restored marriage. And you shall Know the Lord. That's the kind of intimacy that God's word talks about when it talks about knowing Christ. I want to be close to him. I want to know what that relationship means in my day-to-day life. I want my relationship with Christ to be more important than anything else. That nothing in my life distracts from my enjoyment of that relationship with Christ. Is that your commitment? Is that where your life is at? Or do we have the multitude of things in our lives? that we allow to destroy or to distract us from that closeness. Now, what Paul says about that closeness is this. Verse 7, whatever towards my prophet, whatever draws me away from that relationship, I consider loss. I consider to be damaging. I will make Christ the center of focus, the center focused of all that I do. And then he begins to build on that as you get into verse 8. What is more, I consider everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them scubala. I really struggle with how to say that word. It means dung. There's a commercial that comes on uh, in the morning when I'm listening to the radio as I'm getting ready. And it's for Odegon or Odor something like that. I forget the full name of it. But it says about, you know, when you take your dog out for a walk, you need Odegon when it's out rolling in that gross stuff in the dog park. You know what that gross stuff would be called in Greek? Scuba. 
Paul says, that's what I consider. Anything that keeps me from knowing Christ fully. What Paul does is he wants us to know that knowing Christ is of greater value than anything else in my life. There is nothing for the believer that is to be more important than growing in my connectedness to Jesus. Nothing. Now, what Paul does here is, as I said, he makes this the emotional and personal apex of this letter. And I used to read that, and and I didn't quite understand it. I, I could see it sort of topically, but I didn't understand it in sort of emotional way. And then I began to do something, and I have a privilege that many people don't have. Some of you do. I have the privilege of studying the the passage that we're looking at in the Greek, uh, in the original language. And usually that doesn't mean a whole lot. Usually the word means what it's translated and all of that. But this is the one passage, as I was studying it this week, I kept saying, I'm so glad I can look at it in the original language. Because in the original language, the emotion of Paul comes through in unbelievable ways. Paul writes in these verses, in ways that he writes nowhere else in all of Scripture. There are constructions in the original language in this passage that are not only found nowhere else in Paul's writing, they're found nowhere else in any of the New Testament writing. In fact, they're found nowhere else in all of Greek literature. Because Paul is so emphasizing It is such an amazing passage. There are ways in which the grammar and the structure are are so unique. We read, as we read through verses 7 through 11, several different verse, I mean, several different sentences. In the original, it's one sentence. I love that about Paul because I love long, complex sentences. I used to write the term papers and the stuff when I was in college and, and seminary, and they'd write on sentences too long. And I wanted to go back and say, yeah, well, Paul's were longer. This is one sentence. There is one place in verse 8 where we have it translated, and there's no way to translate it into the English. When it says, what is more, I consider everything. That what is more is made of what's called five particles in Greek. They're little words that are used to connect sentences. Nowhere else in all of Greek literature has anyone ever used five different particles right in a row to make an emphasis. And Paul is saying, I want you to understand there is nothing more significant. The way he uses the Greek verbs back and forth in this is absolutely astounding. And the the detail of the tense of the verbs that are used to make sure that we get exactly what Paul is talking about. He uses five what's called genitives right in a row in order to make his point as he comes to the very end there of verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9. And you look at that and say, no one ever does that. Paul says, please get this. Please understand this. 
He demonstrates it by connecting it to Christ. He he uses the same words about himself that he used about Jesus when he says that Jesus did not consider it. Over and over again through this passage, Paul says, I do not consider these things valuable. I now consider Christ. And he's saying, this is the mind. This is how we're like Christ. Christ did not consider equality with God as something to use only for himself. And Paul says, now I consider everything else in my life to be secondary to Christ. He talks about, as he's talking about Jesus and back in, in the passage in where he describes Jesus, he says he was, he was made in human likeness and found in the appearance of man. Paul uses that same phrase when he says, I want to be found in the appearance of Christ. Jesus became and took on the form of a man. Paul says, I'm a man now that wants to take on the form of Jesus. Paul, when he's talking about Christ at the very end there in verses, uh, verse 10, and he talks about the fact that God gives him the name that is above every name. What is that name? The name is Lord. It's Yahweh. Paul says, I want to know Christ as And he says this nowhere else in any of his writings. My Yahweh. My Lord. Paul says, pay attention. This is deep. This is unique. This is central. He demonstrates it by expanding the scope of the verses. He builds on and builds on and builds on. He he says, first of all, in verse 7, that it was... I consider it lost. Then he goes on to say, I consider everything as lost. Then he goes on to say, I consider um, losing everything as a good thing. And then finally, he even uses words that would offend us when he says, scubala. He disdains anything that keeps him from knowing Christ. Probably the most impacting thing about this passage is that all the way through he talks about me. This is my focus. This is what I do. Christ is central in my life. Paul is saying, please pay attention. Please look at this. Don't leave reading this passage and go and turn on the TV or turn on the radio or turn on the computer or get busy with something or please take time and think and evaluate your life. What is central in your life? I don't believe he could have said it any stronger than what he says it here. And what he says about this relationship, again, in these verses and the way that it's constructed, the one first thing he wants us to know is that the value of this relationship came at the very moment of salvation. Maybe not his full understanding, but it was all his at the very moment he came to know Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. 
There's a play on words that takes place in the terms of the verbs in verse 7 when he says, but whatever was to my profit. And what he uses there is he uses the imperfect tense, which means that which was in the past. Whatever in the past I considered to be valuable. Whatever in the past I considered to be central in my life. Whatever in the past I considered to be most important. Whatever in the past I gave all of my commitment and dedication to do. It was all done. And then he uses the imperfect. In order that I might know know and gain Christ. And what he's saying is that which happened back then continues to have its impact in my life. It doesn't stop. But it goes on and on. Salvation is not about fire insurance. It's not even about only It is about, but not only, having my sins forgiven and spending eternity in heaven. Salvation primarily is about knowing Christ, growing in that knowledge, and eventually fulfilling it in its ultimate sense when I stand in his presence for eternity. Just the way he uses the verbs proclaims that. The value of this relationship grows through daily renewal of the gospel. Again, as you read in verse 8, suddenly the verbs change and he says, what is more, I consider present tense. Everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, present tense. For whose sake, present tense, I have lost all things. What Paul says is, this isn't something that just happens at salvation. I need to grow in this day by day by day. I need to ask the question, God, how? How can I come to a deeper relationship with Christ and with you? When I wake up tomorrow, and yes, it's my day off, and we do Pop-Pops Day, and, you know, we will go to McDonald's, and, you know, Austin gets the chicken nuggets, and I get the salad. you know what it's like to get a salad at McDonald's? feels like a crime against nature. The question becomes, how do I know Christ more? through my day tomorrow? How do I start it in a way that reminds me of the centrality of that relationship? How do I draw closer today? Maybe it's in watching the love that I have for my grandson and the love he has for me and say, you know, that's just a small taste of what it means for me to call God Abba. Maybe it's when we sit down and we pray and I hear my grandson pray, and and we say, use full sentences. And he grows in his understanding of God. And I say, God, that's what I want in my life. Every day. Every day it grows. The value of relationship grows through deliberate choices. Paul uses a construction in the Greek that speaks about the choices that I make. Beloved, I need to make those choices that draw me closer to Christ. Adam's teaching about the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines don't make me closer to God. But they place me in that place where God is at work. They put me in that place where what I'm doing is a pleasing behavior to my dad. Why do we come in worship? 
We come and worship in order that we might learn more about our God and our Savior, in order that we might develop and deepen that relationship with Him. Why is Bible study and prayer and solitude and and fasting and simplicity and all the things that Adam is talking about, why are those helpful? Because they put me in that place. I make those choices to say I'm going to be where God is in a unique way. I choose not to move in directions in our lives of selfishness. Why? Because as I move in that direction, it draws me away from God. I choose not to be involved in certain sins in my life. Why? Because God's going to go, no, that's dealt with. That was in Christ. Because I don't want that sin to keep me from enjoying the fullness of my intimacy with Christ. I want to know him. I want to be close to him. I want nothing to draw that away. Now, again, I'm saying that in concrete statements. You do understand I struggle with that every day in my own life. And probably not next week because we're running out of time, but probably in two weeks. We're going to look where Paul says, look at, I have not yet arrived. I still struggle with this in my daily life. But I keep it as the goal. I keep it as to where I'm going. The value of this relationship is compared to real loss. It may cost me something. It doesn't compare to the greatness of knowing Christ. But it may cost me something. Paul says there, as he he goes on, he changes the verbs again a little bit, when he says that, um, uh, he goes on and says, I consider them to be rubbish that I may gain Christ. And right before that, uh, for whose sake I have lost all things. Paul says, there's a legitimate loss. I lost some things when I came to know Christ. My standing in the Jewish community, my position of authority, my position of power, all of those things, I said, you know what? They're scubula compared to knowing Christ. Maybe it's a promotion at a job. When you say, you know what, I'm not going to be involved in that kind of behavior because it draws me away from my enjoyment of Christ. I will set that aside even if it means I won't be promoted. Maybe it means a relationship. Those who are dating, God, this person does not draw me towards you, but away. I may need to make a choice here. Maybe it's an activity in my life. God, I'm getting so caught up in this that it keeps me away from those times of building and enjoying my relationship with you. I need to let them go. The value of this relationship is a step through personal submission. Paul uses a phrase here he uses nowhere else when he says, my You often hear that Christianity is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is. It is acknowledging that he is the God of my life. Later on, Paul is going to talk about those that make their belly their God. 
The word there is the word we get colon from. It's the emptinesses in our lives that drive us. And Paul says there are so many people that have made that their God. In the midst of their loneliness, they're more committed to overcoming their loneliness than to enjoying their relationship with God. In the midst of feeling inadequate, they're more committed to feeling adequate and doing just those things where they feel comfortable than they are in their relationship with God. Paul says, I have one God in my life, and that's Jesus. The value of this relationship is all-encompassing. Paul says, I consider everything secondary. Now, not unimportant. There are things in my life that are secondary to Christ, but are central. My relationship with Cindy, my relationship with my kids and my grandkids, my my relationship to this church, my responsibility as pastor. Are those things important? Yes. The question is, is Christ central? Because there's nothing better. Here's why. Because the value of this relationship is known now and forever. Again, those of you who are grammarians, this is an aorist subjunctive used in a future sense. Something, again, very rare that Paul does here again. This is eternal stuff. The things of the earth are fun, and they can be important in my life. You know? Some people have accused me of being addicted to fishing. I'm not. I can stop anytime I want. I just don't want to. Do I enjoy that? Of course. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. If it becomes to be more central and more focused in my life than my relationship with Christ. Paul says that has eternal value. We're running out of time, and I'm not really going to get to talk about why that is. That's found. We'll do a pick it up next week where Paul says, do you want to know what that value looks like? Paul says, here's what it means to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection, to know the fellowship of his suffering, to die with him on a daily basis, and to be part of the resurrection unto eternity. We'll wait and look at those next week. It's always good because my sermon's ready now for next week, but we'll look at those four things next week on what it means. What does it mean to know the resurrection power of Christ? What does it mean to enter into fellowship of his suffering? Why would we want to do that? What does it mean to die daily with him? By the word, a word used there that is used nowhere else in all of Greek literature. And what does it mean to be part of the out-resurrection? A word that is used there that is used nowhere else in the entire New Testament. Paul's trying to make a 
the question becomes, how do I get that relationship? Paul will talk about how to sustain it. We'll look at that next week. But how do I get it? Paul says knowing Christ requires a response of faith. That's where it begins. I love the verse that follows as Paul talks about that. And he says, you know what? I had all this self-righteous things that I could, I could depend upon. You know, I was, I, was, um, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was of the law of Pharisee. I was of Azeel, the persecutor of, of, God, of the church. Legalistic righteousness. I stood out above everyone. They could, I was the best of the best. I was the top of the class. I was the rookie of the year, but I've given it up to know Christ. And how do you do that? Verse 9, that I might be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Paul says very quickly just a few things here. First of all, he says, a right relationship with God cannot come through my own efforts. We say this all the time. You can't be good enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't obey enough commandments because the commandments show you how you can't keep them all. You know, you think I've never committed adultery. Then Jesus comes along and says, yeah, but if you've ever thought wrong thoughts about a woman, that's adultery. You go, you say, I'm not greedy. And the law says we should never covet. Our whole financial system is based on coveting. Just watch commercials. I think it's necessary. We live in a fallen world, but that's the reality of it. You can never be good enough. Ever, 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 ever. A right relationship with God cannot come through my keeping all the laws and commandments. Why? Because you can't. Paul says if you break one, it's like you broke them all. And beloved, you have broken a command. Probably all of them at some time. I never murdered. Well, you ever hated somebody? You ever scream at that lady in front of you in the left-hand lane that's going 20 miles an hour in a 50-mile-an-hour zone? And a right relationship with God comes through and Literally in the Greek, it's Christ's faith. And there's two ways to understand that. It's either the faithfulness of Jesus who did all of these things or our faith in Christ. And you, you can't believe the number of commentaries and commentary pages and dissertations and theological theses and all that are written on. Is this an objective or a subjective genitive? Is it the, 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 the faith that was Christ's and his faithfulness, or is it my faith in him? And the answer is, uh, but it doesn't really matter. Paul uses it both ways. There's a passage found in Galatians where it's definitely both ways when he says, who, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. That's 
Jesus Christ faith. Objective or subjective, we don't know. It's, it's hard to tell. So we, ha- so we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus. Literally, it's in Christ Jesus we have faith. It's a, it's a verb there. Well, obviously, that's my faith in Christ, not his faithfulness. That we may be justified by faith in Christ. So does it matter whether it's my faith or his faith? Not here. We're going to see it in just a moment. My tendency is I think it means Jesus' faithfulness. That he was faithful to God, as Paul had said in verses 5 through 11, who did not um, consider equality with God as something to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. But then Paul goes on to say it's also a right relationship that comes from God alone. Again, notice there in verse 9, when he says the righteousness that comes from God, I can't do it. And then finally, a right relationship with God comes from my faith. When he ends there by saying that it comes from God and is by my faith. That's how it starts, and that's how it continues. I get worried about church people for two reasons. One, if you were raised in the church, you've heard about Christ since you were this high. And it's so easy to just think, oh, that's just another message. That's just another gospel. That's just a, I mean, I grew up in it. I went down forward more times than I can remember. And I'm not sure which one was efficacious. Jesus and, and, and all the God talk was just, that's what you did. Paul says, that's not what it's about. It's about a relationship. It's about Jesus as a lover. I know people go, but it speaks of that kind of intimacy. For those of us that came to know Jesus Christ later in life, have you forgotten your first love? Remember those first days, months, weeks after coming to know Christ? How thrilled and central it was. Paul says, let's go back to that. And next week, we'll talk about how. There's nothing more central in the life of the believer than deepening our intimacy, our knowledge, our enjoyment of our relationship with Christ. Father, thank you for what your your word teaches to us what it proclaims to us and remind us what it means to be involved with our first love. Remind us what it means to have you as the central purpose and focus of our lives. Father, if there's someone here that's never even begun that relationship, we've all been there. I pray that you would move in their heart and have them speak to someone how they can begin that relationship. Father, most of us here have that salvation. 
remind us of just how valuable it is and how Christ is to be our all in all. Allow your spirit to show us where we have failed. Encourage us where we are walking well and to make the changes that will be eternally significant that we might know you fully. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus.